welcome to episode two of the Farm One podcast. My name is Ina Tubaleha, and today I am joined by Rob Lang, our CEO and founder. Hello. Michael Chin is joining us Hello. virtually, and today we have a special we have a special guest with us, Justin Randolph, our operations director. Hello. Each episode is going to have a couple of different segments, and we're going to start the first segment of showing you all what's in this week's bag of our farm share. So we actually have a bag with us right here. So all of our farm share deliveries are delivered in these reusable bags. Show the logo. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And um, since Justin is here with us, we're actually going to walk through each box. So every each. Yikes. Each delivery comes with three boxes. The first one that you'll see is our herbs and edible flowers box. I wish you could smell this. Oh my goodness, look at that. It smells really good. Yeah, let's go. Oh wow, it looks so good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Justin, can you walk us through what's in the herbs and edible flowers box for this week? Yeah, sure. So um, you can see a lot of the uh, flower colors that pop out immediately. Uh, the flowers that we have in here are marigolds, uh, Durango marigolds, which are a larger uh, edible flower, uh, really great for kind of confetti petals and, and garnishes and that sort of thing. Uh, we have some dianthus flowers and some assorted violas uh, as well, all of which are edible. Uh, now for the herb part that we have, uh, we have uh, this week we're featuring uh, a few different kinds of basil, actually. Uh, so it's a little basil sampler. So starting off at the top here, we have a very traditional style uh, Genovese basil, uh, an Italian basil, uh, really great for pesto. It's really beautiful, pillowy, fluffy, uh, classic uh, basil flavor and look to it there. Uh, yeah, try it out. Mm. What else we got? Uh, so next to that, uh, we have another uh, uh, basil variety that uh, is really interesting. It's a little bit more unique. Uh, it grows a little bit more differently, and, and, and it looks a little bit different uh, as well. This is called a, a Pluto basil. Maybe if you want to pop one out there so folks can see. Uh, it's a little bit more compact, smaller leaves, uh, kind of more of a bush-style basil, uh, if you will. Uh, but it's incredibly aromatic. It really just kind of pops out of the container right when you open the... It's my favorite. Uh, yeah, this is gorgeous. It's just like the whole the whole room here smells like Pluto basil now. Um, a little bit more spicy, a little bit more kind of like... There's a little kind of like cinnamon, nutmeg, and clove, and that sort of like warm spice in there. That's really um, strong. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love that so much. It's great. A little bit goes a long way. Mm-hmm. Um, and now for the third basil uh, down below here, uh, we have uh, something a little bit more off the beaten path. This is a cinnamon basil. Uh, so uh, as far as the leaves go, uh, a broader leaf basil, you can kind of see uh, there kind of, it almost looks like a, like a Thai basil, um, but it has a little bit more of a, almost more like a fruity aromatic to me. Uh, of course, it has that kind of like cinnamon sort of backbone. Uh, this is really great for making syrups, uh, doing it in cocktails or teas or that sort of thing. Yeah, and it's got this like serrated edge as well, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. So you can you can you can kind of tell it. It's you wouldn't spot it if you hadn't been around this plant that much, but you can spot it if you yeah. had a bit of experience. Yeah, yeah. so good. Uh, and then uh, one more herb that we have here for you uh, in the center. Here we have a little bit of summer savory. 
So this is kind of the, the late summer savory here. Uh, savory, if you've never uh, uh, had the opportunity to experience it, uh, it I, I kind of, I like to tell people it tastes a little bit like oregano. It has that uh, more kind of uh, oregano-y sort of thyme, sort of scrubby or herb flavor. It's a little bit more succulent. Yeah, uh, you know, it's not it's not quite as kind of rough in, in texture as like a like a thyme. Um, but I love summer savory with uh, like sauteed with beans, like a like a. Um, uh, like a bean stew or doing it in bread is really beautiful oh, as well. Oh, yeah. That's so nice. Ooh, a nice focaccia. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Any focaccia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Amazing. All right. That's our box. So that's in the herbs and flowers box. That's the blue box. And every box, uh, every bag has red, yellow, and blue. Blue is always the herbs and flowers, and that'll adjust mm -hmm. uh, depending on what's on the farm. So if you look behind us, you'll see stuff that might appear in another box. So that's blue. The next box that we're gonna walk you through is our red box, which has the microgreens. Oh, it's so pretty. Oh, look at that. Yeah, make sure you don't tip <laughs> it on the floor. <laughs> so what do we have in the microgreens this week, Justin? Okay, so the microgreens this week, uh, we have uh, a few different kinds of mustards and maizunas. Uh, so the green, we'll start off with the green color here. The green color uh, is uh, something that's really interesting. This is a green wave mustard. Now we've grown green wave mustard as a, like a larger leaf mustard, uh, a full leaf, uh, and it's a really spicy uh, variety of mustard. Uh, the microgreen is not quite as spicy as the really intense mature leaves, uh, but it has a nice little uh, kind of like quick little pop uh, when you eat it, really beautiful. It yeah. gives me like a flavor of wasabi, a little yeah. Yeah. very yeah. small hint of wasabi. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's that horseradish. Um, the thing to note, by the way, about this, the stuff that we're showing you right now, this is a little bit younger than what's going to go out on like Wednesday and Friday, uh, just because it's a couple of days uh, before that harvest. So what you're seeing here, you're going to get bigger leaves, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you're also going to get like a more characteristic, like jagged shape from the mizuna and, and the mustard as well have more of a, a leaf shape. Uh, so then uh, let's see here. We have uh, a mizuna here. Uh, this is a red streak mizuna, uh, really kind of beautiful uh, shape to the true leaf, which you'll see uh, in the box. Um, not quite as spicy as the green wave, but it still has a nice kind of little uh, kick to it as well. Right. Uh, and then uh, deep red leaves, uh, which I really love the color of. Uh, we have uh, Miss America mizuna, um, very similar to the uh, to the uh, to the red streak, uh, but a kind of deeper uh, deeper color gives it that nice kind of garnet pop. You know, the Miss America ones mm -hmm. almost taste like potato skins to me. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> it has like that nice peppery taste to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get that. Cool. Okay, so that's the red box. That's the microgreens. Um, and then in your yellow box every week, you're going to get baby greens. So let's have a look at what's in this week. Ta-da. So the baby greens, you can see the leaves are uh, uh, a little bit larger, uh, really great for your kind of like classic salad mix. Uh, so we have a few different things uh, in this. Uh, we have a mixture of lettuces. Uh, this is called a five-star lettuce. Um, it's a real nice and tender, soft, uh, just really uh, pleasing style lettuce. Great texture on it. 
Um, next, we have uh, a mixture of kales, actually. Uh, we have a, an Italian kale, uh, Toscano, a uh, really classic uh, Italian kale, nice kind of um, bluish gray sort of leaves to it. A um, little bit more, a little bit more substantial texture. Uh, we have a little bit of uh, red Russian kale, which is not red. <laughs> it's not red, no. It's red Russian. We actually have red kale in the mix as well, which is uh, which is that kind of maroon red. Uh, oh, well. that's good. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Awesome. Thanks for walking us through that, Justin. I'm really excited for all of our FarmShare customers to experience some of these flavors that we just tried. And all of our deliveries will be going out by bike. And um, the reusable containers have been actually really easy and simple for all of our customers to exchange for every delivery. It's one of the ways that Farm One is really excited about reducing waste and uh, specifically plastic waste when it comes to some of these greens. Definitely. Awesome. Yeah. So. What's next, Ina? The next segment that we're gonna go into is news, where we're gonna share, in this segment, we're gonna be sharing a little bit of updates about Farm One, as well as some vertical farming and industry news that we are really excited about or that we find interesting. Michael, do you wanna start us off with some of the industry updates that you have? Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Um, so the first story that I want to talk about and, and get everyone's input on and, and their take actually came out at the end of last month in the uh, Financial Times, the FT. They published a story called that was titled Vertical Farming Hype, Hope or Hype. And it feels like with every industry, uh, you know, that, that's out there that's coming up and, and, you know, there's a ton of hype around it. Uh, the natural news cycle tends to be, you know, within a few years of uh, some success and, and some notoriety. Um, you know, there's always the counter story, the uh, this is hype, this is all going to go away. So this was an interesting story and felt kind of timely. And even though it came out uh, a little over a week ago, I figured, uh, you know, since we skipped last week's podcast, uh, this is a pretty important story in our industry, right? So the premise of the story, and, and we touched on this a little bit last week when we talked about uh, Driscoll's investment in Plenty, is you've got on the one hand, all of this investment that's going in, and, you know, they're citing, of course, you know, almost $2 billion in investment in vertical farming and ag tech since 2014. Um, on the one hand, you've got all of that and entrepreneurs and investors are talking about the promise of efficiency, of uh, how environmentally friendly and all of this stuff is. And then on the other hand, you've got the, I wouldn't say they're naysayers, maybe they're realists in some respects, where they're starting to talk about, well, you know, productivity isn't really what a lot of entrepreneurs and, and, and vertical farms are, are, are quite talking about. It's going to take a while. It's still really expensive. There's still a lot of uh, capital that needs to go in. It's not the cure-all, right? So here's the question. Is it is there hope in this? Is this going to change the food system? Are we all going to be looking at people like Justin in the future as the titans of uh, industry? Or is it just hype, right? Is it going to go the way of, you know, the usual sort of Betamax and other things that we point to in the industry? What do you guys think? Well, Betamax was a superior technology, by the way. So. <laughs> 
<laughs> but um, I mean, you know, I, I think you know my opinion in, in some extent. I think it's going to take quite a bit of time for a lot of these companies to uh, get to profitability. And, you know, some investors are going to have the patience for it, for that. Some co companies are just going to die on the way. Um, building vertical farms at a large scale is a really expensive proposition. And it really seems like none of these bigger companies are anywhere close to profitability yet. Um, I think that, you know, and as mentioned in the article, and it's a good article to read, I think, as mentioned in the article, I think one of the worries is that there are just too many outlandish claims from the vertical farming industry. Like companies tend to say like, oh, we're completely clean. We have no emissions. We have completely um, local food, all this kind of stuff. And they're just, I think a lot of companies are just pushing it a bit too far with the PR and it would be better as an industry if we just get more realistic about what's going on. So, you know, the power that we use is quite significant. Um, the, uh, well, the, the expense and the labor involved in running these farms is pretty significant. Um, and so, you know, it'd be better for us to just become more realistic. I know that's a bit difficult when companies are trying to raise money, they're trying to get investors excited, but in the long term, you know, being realistic and straightforward about the shortcomings of your company and, and the difficulties, that's going to be a more promising thing. And I, I think we've got to do that as an industry so that, you know, customers and investors don't just after a while, like say, hey, this is you guys are all full of shit, you know. So that's my take on it. I don't know. I mean, Justin, what do you think? Like as someone who actually lives and works on a vertical farm like every day, uh, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with you, Rob, in that um, there is a lot that we can do to improve the way we operate here. There's a lot of, uh, I mean, it's still pretty expensive to build a farm. Um, we can find more efficiencies, uh, but that's that's kind of what we're focusing on. You know, I'm, I don't come into work every day trying to uh, disrupt the entire, uh, you know, world's food supply and, and, and farming and that sort of thing. So, you know, we're, I think we're, uh, we're making a lot of, uh, gains here at Farm One, uh, kind of piece by piece, and uh, we're going to just keep focusing on that, making our operation more efficient, uh, more consistent, uh, and and putting out a better product and, and better yields. I think there's I, you a... know, oh, go ahead, Michael. Sorry. No, sorry. Go on. <laughs> I don't think that the future of farming and agriculture is going to be vertical farming only. I think that there's going to be success in certain use cases for vertical farming, but the future of food is not going to be just this industry. And so I think that it's really important for this industry to find out where there is opportunity for them to solve some serious problems in the food, in the food space. Yeah, I, to I could totally agree. And like, I think one of the things is a lot of these companies right now don't want to say no. So someone will come to them and they'll say, hey, could we grow wheat or could we grow, you know, jackfruit or something, right? And some of these companies are sort of, they're, they're toying with investors and people and saying like, yeah, we could do that in a few years time, or we could do blueberries or we could do this. And it's like, you know, actually, like, let's look realistically at what we would be able to grow in 10 years. It's not those things. It's going to be leafy greens. It's going to be some fruit, probably strawberries. I don't know if you've got other ideas about what might be viable, but like, it's not it's not wheat it's not soy it's not corn you know it's not these big sort of different yeah, it's, things it's, it's not going to be commodity crops you know we we could do uh we could do peppers you know we could start to do like small fruits and that sort of thing uh i think pretty easily but it's it, it's not top of our list to do you know big commodity crops yeah so to Ina's point what does what does i guess the future of farming look like then 
right? So right now, something like 50% of the organics in the US come out of California. We've seen over this summer, some of the problems that we're facing and the environmental impacts of climate change. Um, you know, they're running into water issues from the Colorado River drying up. You know, what happens there? What, you know, when we think of the entire picture of what we do as an indoor vertical farm, but then, you know, there's the uh, greenhouse aspect of controlled environment agriculture. And then, of course, there's, there's still field farming that's happening. You know, let's say in the near term over the next five years or so, how does that begin to shape up, do you think? Well, I think vertical farming is, is definitely part of the answer to that. But I, I think you're going to start to see folks come up with all sorts of solutions, especially, you know, in places like California and, and throughout the, the West and Midwest, where you have a lot of families that have been into farming for a long time and, and being, uh, you know, kind of forced to change the way that they do things, especially the younger generations. Uh, so for some of them, it's going to be uh, getting into ver vertical farming. Some, some of them, it's going to be using other sort of, you know, methods to uh, produce crops, you know, produce the crops that they've been producing for a long time. So I think it's part of that. Yeah, I, th I think that, you know, people often forget that agriculture as a whole has so many different types of agriculture going on. You know, you've got orchards, you've got animal husbandry, you've got uh, leafy greens, you've got um, I mean, my parents used to grow olives, right? Completely different kind of farming. And so uh, this technology is suitable, you know, for a, for a particular subset of crops and also a particular subset of situations. I think what is sort of really interesting and just doesn't get talked about that much is it is viable with vertical farming for a farmer who may be growing just one or two crops outdoors to build a small vertical farming facility that can then serve their local community in a way that they just haven't been able to uh, previously. So if you look at someone growing, uh, let's say corn, you know, in the Midwest, it just wouldn't really be viable for them to try to grow like a spinach or a leafy green otherwise. Uh, but to have like a small greenhouse or a small vertical farming structure that could, you know, help them serve their local community with some fresh uh, produce is actually something that's pretty viable and it's getting cheaper and cheaper. And I think that's the cool thing. And it's, getting to be a technology which is accessible as well. And what we're hoping to do, I think, you know, in addition to other companies, is just reduce that barrier to entry so that more and more people can do this stuff uh, easily. I don't know if you agree with that, but like that's my, my sort of take on it. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, uh, the, the, the barrier to entry is, is kind of one of the big roadblocks right now, and that's, that's one of the, the big things that we're tackling, so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's cost of the equipment and, and, and also the capital requirements, but also there's a knowledge base, right? There's talent. Um, and, you know, I think uh, that's one of the things I'm particularly interested in when we uh, get into the discussion about Justin and what he does later. Um, you know, how do you develop and cultivate that talent? How does that happen, uh, you know, uh, at, at scale? Um, you know, I'm also keen to hear uh, Ina as a tour guide, as somebody who started in this business and at Farm One, um, you know, getting people excited and interested about this, uh, you know, curious sort of your take in terms of um, how we think about awareness and uh, in the industry, uh, job training and, and, and all of that too. What was the other news story that you found um, in the past week, Michael? 
Yeah, so um, kind of along these lines, right? This theme of where we're at a bit of an inflection point in the industry, or at least it feels like it, right? So um, there's a story this week that Italy, our, uh, our, our good friends over there in the Flatiron, um, sort of premium grocery, or I guess you'd call them marketplace, um, signed a pretty big deal with Mercado, which is an e-commerce platform. Uh, to do same-day deliveries off of their platform. Um, this kind of got really interesting for me when I coupled it with uh, a story that came out of a research firm, an analyst firm in the UK called IGD, where they profiled what they're calling Generation P. Uh, at some stage, we got to run out of letters, but um, they call <laughs> them the uh, perennial shoppers. So they're people age 50 to 64. Um, you know, they're looking at them as a trillion and a half dollar uh, grocery market. Um, but the, it sort of made me kind of think about the way we're changing habits. Uh, you know, coming into COVID, um, you know, it, it almost felt like everything about the world was really different. Um, and now it's, uh, it, it's, it's so much has changed, right? I mean, it's, we've looked at the supply chain, we've had conversations about the supply chain and the food system. Um, you know, and now we're looking at uh, uh, changing buying patterns, how retailers and brands and suppliers need to think about things, you know, look at what we're doing, right? We're now selling direct to consumers as uh, very high touch, very sort of close connection to the brand. Um, curious kind of how you guys, where the place where vertical farming's place in all of this and suppliers like us that are in neighborhoods and in communities, how, how should we be thinking about this? Well, I think it's, you know, it's interesting when you think about Italy, right? Because previously a brand like that has used retail to, you know, create its distribution channel and, and meet consumers, right? So spending a lot of money on prime locations in Flatiron here, downtown, very, very, very expensive real estate in order to get their brand across and also just actually meet the customer. Whereas what they're saying or what they're sort of admitting now with COVID is, oh, okay, a significant amount of volume is going to be delivery. I can't actually get directly to my customer. I'm not capable of building up a delivery network or an online uh, store experience and attract enough people. So I'm going to work with a partner like Mercado. Uh, Mercado being, I would, you know, personally in my experience, not the greatest user experience. Um, I don't know that many people who are like passionate Mercado shoppers. No, so, um, so you know, maybe not the premier partner in that regard, but maybe a partner that's better for them to work with than say Amazon, where they might just lose all, you know, chance of kind of brand recognition, etc. So I think that if you look at that, that's that's kind of the way that Italy is going, and, and you know, I, I hope that it's successful, but it does sort of look a little bit like capitulation to me. Um, but the I think in terms of like how that might fit in with us and producers and vertical farmers, I think the you know one of the big questions about any about being any kind of producer is am I a commodity producer or am I creating a brand that uh, customers recognize and I can leverage for higher margins, higher value. And of course creating a brand is difficult. It costs a lot of money, it requires expertise, it's not always successful and you don't always get that price premium that you expect. But I think that some vertical farms are definitely trying to go that right. They're trying route. They're trying to create brands that are recognizable. If you look at, um, for instance, Bowery, 
Um, you know, their brand name is all over that product. I don't know how much recognition they really have among customers. I don't know how many customers really in the grocery store are comparing salad brands. Most of the time when I go to the grocery store, if I see salad, I go like, oh, I don't like that one. I don't like that one. I don't like that one because the quality is generally not that great. Um, but maybe it's possible. And I think that if you look, you know, long term, you would expect that a lot of produce producers um, want to at least differentiate in the grocery store because at the moment they can't. You know, if you grow, if you buy broccoli at Whole Foods, it's very unlikely that you're going to recognize the brand that that's from, which of course means the grower is getting a lower price point because they're basically a replaceable commodity. And so I think that, you know, you will see more farmers at least entering the market, entering new farmers going like, okay, I better create a brand for myself. Otherwise I'm going to be commoditized. I think for historically for farmers who've been, you know, growing for ages, that isn't necessarily an option. It's, you know, not necessarily going to be something that they can achieve if they're outside of a city, for instance. And so it's a, it's a tricky kind of landscape, but um, you know, certainly the approach that we've taken, of course, is to try to create a brand and to try to create um, sort of local connection. But I think, you know, my last point to that would be one of the problems with our food chain, right, is that the produce that we buy as consumers, sometimes we just don't know where it comes from or it comes from a long way away. It comes from like not a real person. So we don't care how it was produced, if it was using pesticides, et cetera, et cetera. And so along with that need to create a brand, I think is this opportunity to create a local connection. And that's why, you know, personally, I like the urban farming approach because you can have a farm that is like literally very, very close to its customers. And so that, that that concept of like what a brand is becomes, you know, much more human. It's like, okay, it's not really a brand. It's Justin around the corner who I know is like a nice guy and, you know, he does it this way. So um, anyway, that was a long stream of opinion, Michael, but, you know, I don't know if you guys want to chime in on that. Yeah, just, you know, thinking about uh, delivery and same day delivery from the customer's perspective, you know, I think, um, Probably most people, when they think about ordering uh, groceries and, and produce and that sort of thing online, uh, they're usually kind of the first thing that pops into mind is the stores that they already shop at uh, or some of these bigger names. So uh, I, I don't think that right now vertical farming pops into into folks' minds. Uh, but as kind of Rob was getting at, you know, with with the with the bigger companies and, and uh, the bigger retailers, you're not really getting the same sort of product. Uh, so I think there's a there's a really big opportunity right now for uh, vertical farmers, for urban farmers to kind of step in and, and play that role of, of you know, uh, the, the company that produces uh, greens and, and herbs and flowers and that sort of thing in a very local setting and, and uh, you know, delivers by bike, that sort of thing. Did Italy have a delivery model prior to this or were they only retail? Uh, I definitely ordered from Italy, but I think it was through Instacart, I see. maybe. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, because this change actually makes me more inclined to want to shop at Italy because I love the ingredients. I love the specialty products that they have. I love the focaccia. I love the focaccia. <laughs> um, but the retail space was always really overwhelming for me because it was such in high traffic places. Uh, you know, I, I remember feeling there was just so many tourists and I, I was overwhelmed by the amount of volume of people versus being able to focus on the, the ingredient experience. So I think that this kind of thing makes me more excited about shopping from Italy. I mean, this is the real test, right? Like if you put great ingredients behind a delivery service, then you're really saying I have great in ingredients. Like that's why I'm going to 
be chosen, yeah. you know? And you take away that beautiful story experience, you take away the wine bar and like all this stuff you're left with, like, is this pasta sauce actually any better than what I'm gonna get on Amazon? That's the, yeah. that's the test, yeah. Well, we'll find out. We'll find out. <laughs> all right. Well, that's the news of this week. Okay. Thanks, Michael. So the next segment that we're gonna go into is an interview with Justin Randall. When do we get to the Prosecco segment? Right now. <laughs> <laughs> Make the interview um, a lot more interesting. <laughs> well, you know, when I first started as a tour guide, um, every time I would come back into the farm, um, it was, you know, 5, 6 p.m. right as the harvest shift was winding down. And there was one day that Justin had actually taught me how to open up a Prosecco bottle without making a sound. But why are we opening Prosecco right now, guys? There's, we have to talk about that. We're we? celebrating. Okay. the win of joe biden and kamala harris i mean for a broader audience we're ce celebrating democracy in action right yes and the yes. greatest voter turnout in u.s history absolutely yeah but very much that biden defeated trump as well so, and it's also yeah. a really good day to be a female mm -hmm. you know i yeah. feel really excited that there's a woman of color that is in office amazing yeah. amazing do you want to show us justin okay don't tell us so, why but you got to tell us why you know how to deal with <laughs> wine in general right okay uh so uh, I'll do that. I, I should say, though, the first the first trick to opening a bottle of Prosecco or champagne or any sort of sparkling wine uh, without making a sound is it has to be really cold. Oh. This is a little a little uh, been sitting on the floor for a little bit, a little <laughs> bit more than cold. But uh, we'll see how we do. Um, I always so thought the first trick it, was to shake it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, while I open this, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, but uh, you, you always want to uh, keep your thumb uh, on the cork uh, through, the, through the whole process. I'm going to take the foil off real quick. Um, before uh, coming to Farm One, I uh, worked for many years in the New York City restaurant scene. Uh, kind of started off a long time ago at Tribeca Grill, uh, which is right around the corn here, corner here in Tribeca on Franklin and Greenwich. Uh, and uh, as a server, uh, and it's very well known for, uh, this is gonna be a long story, so you guys are, are waiting for a long time for this. <laughs> um, no, I'll, I'll do this quickly. So uh, Tribeca Grill is very well known for their wine list, one of the, the largest wine sellers in the world. Uh, and uh, I started studying there uh, and um, started studying at the wine at the um, uh, American Sommelier Association, Court of Master Sommeliers. Uh, and kind of worked my way up to assistant sommelier, uh, then left that restaurant group and uh, joined a couple other restaurant groups, uh, eventually Quality Branded, uh, which is a large group here in New York City, uh, as sommelier and then wine director uh, at several locations. So uh, kind of come from a restaurant culinary sort of background. Uh, so. So you should so be able to do this. Should be able to do this. Yeah. <laughs> We've got great microphones here, so but what's, see how we But do. also, what's the trick with Prosecco versus, how many twists is the Prosecco versus? Oh, it's six. So six. Some, yeah. some producers use uh, cages that have more than six twists, uh, but the traditional uh, uh, cage uh, has six twists. So Wait, how did that happen? What? There you go. Okay. Did you hear that? Wait, it's done? It's yeah. Done. <laughs> it's like an Olympic diver diving into the to the pool and making no splash. No splash. Man. It's like getting a flu shot. I'm like all excited and then it's over. <laughs> so so cheers to uh, to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Amazing. 
Um, yeah. Are we going to garnish this with something fancy from yeah. our box? It's just behind you, actually. Um, yeah. Oh, thanks, Justin. Um, this is the same Prosecco that we serve on our farm tours whenever they resume. We've had, obviously, a bunch of inquiries, people who want to come and visit the farm. Uh, right now, we're just not able to do that because we can't really have visitors due to COVID. Um, you know, we definitely want to resume that whenever we can. It may actually be in a slightly different space. It may be uh, in a different format. We're trying to figure that out. Um, oh, thank you. Little, little Dianthus in there. Oh, no, we've got a viola. Viola, yeah. Very pretty. Oh, it's beautiful. Okay, gorgeous. I mean, this is obviously the simplest garnish you could possibly do. But one of the things you can do with your herbs and flowers in the box is to garnish a little cocktail. You don't need to do, I mean, the point is, I think you don't need to do anything like ridiculously fancy with this produce. You can literally make yourself a little vodka and tonic and put uh, some lemon basil in there. You can um, put it in a non alcoholic drink as well. Cheers. Cheers. Would you like some? I'm okay. You're good, right? Um, so yeah, cheers. On to the next segment. So Justin, we actually wanted to dive a little bit deeper into your background and how you ended up here at Farm One and you know where the interest in vertical farming came from and how that started. Cool. Can you share a little bit about that story? Uh, yeah, well, uh, so I talked a little bit about my restaurant background, but um, Really, uh, what got me into plants was uh, my parents. Uh, growing up, uh, my parents always had a garden. Uh, now they, they live in uh, Jefferson City, Missouri, and they practice something called hugel culture. Uh, and if you're not familiar with hugel culture, it's basically, if you've ever seen like a raised bed uh, outdoor uh, you know, farming, uh, it's kind of like raised bed gardening on steroids, uh, where you'll have these really large kind of raised beds. A lot of times you put big logs, uh, uh, branches, leaves, all sorts of things. And you basically develop the soil uh, in these, these big kind of uh, uh, ultra large raised beds. Uh, but growing up, my parents always had a garden. You know, we grew up in the South in Virginia and Georgia and Texas. Uh, and we always, you know, uh, gardened organically. Uh, and I think I was probably in probably late high school, early into college uh, when I started to like it. Uh, kind of early on when I was a kid, it was, it was a part of the chores. Like you always had to go out and work in the garden, do something, build a raised bed or like do something like that. So it was always like, ah, I hate this garden thing. <laughs> uh, but then, you know, you, you start to, to get to where you enjoy it. Uh, and then kind of late in high school, early college days, I started cooking a lot. Uh, so I would come home, especially, you know, coming home from college during the summer, uh, going out in the, in the garden and just, you know, picking things when they're really super fresh. Uh, sauteing them off just really simply. Uh, and it really kind of solidified in, uh, in, in kind of my blood that I really love gardening. Um, so uh, fast forward many years, I ended up uh, going to school here at Queens College in, in New York City, uh, studying music. Uh, but eventually I found an apartment with a backyard uh, and I was able to uh, build this uh, kind of really large, elaborate, uh, garden uh, that, that kind of became an obsession. So uh, every year it becomes more and more tomato plants. I think I got up to about 60 tomato plants this year, uh, something like 24 or so pepper plants, just all sorts of things. A lot of the things you see here at Farm One, I grow uh, in my uh, backyard. I've actually got some, uh, this Rauram was actually cloned from my, uh, my backyard. So, um, Oh, was it? But yeah. wasn't that cloned? 
from the farm. This was the yeah, it was cloned from the farm. <laughs> right. It left the farm and yeah. then it's back from yeah from my backyard. How's your water so, bill this year, Justin? Oh, so yeah, so uh, <laughs> I'll tell this story. I I have a really fantastic landlord. He's he's kind of become a, a celebrity uh, landlord these days. But uh, you know, I've been living in this uh, apartment for about. 14 years now uh, and the the garden has grown and grown and grown and grown and for the most part my landlord was pretty into it he, he supported uh, me and my wife doing it uh, and uh, until this year this year uh, he uh, he was knocking on our back door uh, not very very happy uh, and he had the water bill for the for the building uh, and it had gone up uh, I think uh, about eight hundred dollars in a month uh, so he it kind of put the kibosh on a lot of the, the gardening that we were doing this year, uh, which was a little unfortunate. We, we kind of scaled it back a little bit to something that was more manageable with, with rainwater, um, but, uh, but we stopped watering it. I, I have a feeling though, uh, I wasn't the only one uh, who got a Con Ed bill uh, during COVID that was greatly inflated because they couldn't go out and read the meters during COVID. Yeah. So they, everyone got like three, $400 electrical bills, mm -hmm. I kind of have a feeling that the same sort of thing happened with the water and the sewer bill. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I didn't want to argue it too much. He was very right. kind and, and didn't charge us for that, uh, <laughs> that exorbitant bill. Um, so, you know, we, we, we just kind of made do with what we had and we had a great harvest this year and it's, it's still going with a few tomatoes, but, um, Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. What the, did you do with all those tomatoes? Well, we do a few things. Uh, the number one thing we do is eat them fresh. We eat, we eat quite a quite a lot of you know tomato salad and just tomatoes tossed with basil and, and olive oil and salt and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, we do sauces, saucing you know just pureeing tomatoes. Sometimes we'll do it with a little bit of garlic, with a little bit of oregano, not too much flavors because we don't know what we're going to use it uh, for in the future. Uh, but we freeze it uh, all that sauce, uh, and then late summer early autumn tomatoes uh they they'll start to cr turn color on the vine but they won't fully ripen uh so they're really great for quick pickles so i've got a ton of tomatoes out there right now that i'm gonna uh quick pickle uh and they're nice and kind of vibrant and fresh and it's a good way to just kind of like capture that last bit of uh the 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 season maybe that should be like a super premium add-on to the subscription is Justin's uh, pickled tomatoes. Yeah, it, you know? it, it'd have to be quite a price for me to part with it. Yeah, but. hundreds of dollars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Thanks for sharing, Justin. Yeah. Michael, do you have any other questions for Justin? Yeah, I actually have a ton. Um, so, okay, so you had an interest in gardening, you had an interest in, in growing things and cooking them. So, how did you find farm one like what how did you end up sort of you know on on the farm yeah so um you know i was working in restaurants for for a very long time and and uh kind of uh really loving it and and uh working with a uh, a restaurant called uh, uh park avenue seasons uh which is now uh on 26th and park it used to be on the uh, upper east side on 63rd and Park Avenue, uh, but it's a restaurant that basically reinvents itself uh, four times a year. Uh, so every season it opens as a completely new restaurant, new menu, new uh, furniture, new uh, decorations. I mean, like the, the hand soaps in the bathroom 
uh, change. So it's it's quite an undertaking. Uh, so uh, in addition to that, um, you know, kind of had this kind of like grueling schedule of, of constantly turning over restaurants. Uh, in addition to that, we opened another restaurant uh, for a brief period of time called General Assembly uh, in the old uh, Hurricane Club spot on uh, 26th and Park Avenue. Uh, we flipped a, a nightclub and, and uh, did a few other things. Uh, the schedule was was uh, a little bit less than ideal. It's a real, real kind of like grueling, grinding sort of schedule. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the sort of job where, you know, you, you got to be there, you know, bright and early in the morning till, you know, the wee hours of the night, you know. Um, uh, so kind of in the midst of all of that, my wife and I got married uh, and uh, she was a, uh, uh, a nurse actually at Woodhull Hospital uh, in uh, East Williamsburg, Bushwick, uh, Brooklyn uh, and working in trauma. Uh, and we basically just never saw each other anymore. So we're, we're kind of like you know, newly, newlyweds, not seeing each other, just kind of like, you know, just a little bit of passing, that sort of thing. Uh, so we decided that, you know, we got to, we had to do something different. So, um, you know, I, I started looking uh, for something where I could use kind of like my culinary background, my management, you know, restaurant management background, uh, and kind of bring a lot of those skills to it. Uh, and uh, I saw Farm One and it, it kind of just clicked to me with, you know, with my love of gardening, uh, of course, I didn't know anything about hydroponics, really, uh, but I knew how to group, grow plants outdoors uh, and I knew a bit about uh, kind of operations and management and that sort of thing. Uh, so it, it, it clicked. It clicked with me, definitely. So coming into it, not knowing anything about hydroponics, what was that learning curve like? I mean, how badly did you fuck up the first week? <laughs> well, you know, there's an, there, there's a, there's opportunity for mistakes, definitely. Uh, but I think, you know, when I when I joined Farm One, we had a, a, a really, a really great crew. And there were a lot of folks uh, around, you know, of course, Rob was there. And we, we had a lot of other folks who, who were uh, really great with kind of showing me the ropes and, and uh, uh, helping me learn the systems. There's there's a lot of uh, overlap between, you know, growing outdoors and growing indoors. Uh, and then there's a lot that's, you know, very, very different. Uh, you know, for instance, uh, uh, growing outdoors Man, if you if you talk to any uh, any person who's been gardening for a long you know a long period of time, they'll tell you the the most important thing is the soil, and and you know they'll talk about how they've built their soil over the course of many 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 years, and how many worms they have in their soil, and what color it is, and like you know they they just love like you know taking handfuls and smelling it and that sort of thing. Um, here in, in hydroponics, obviously, you know water is uh, you know replacing the soil. It's equally important, but it's a very different beast to, to manage. Uh, so uh, just like with soil, you know, we, we um, take care of the uh, microbial life, the bacterial life that's in, in, the, in the water that's helping uh, the plants uptake nutrients. Uh, but you have to do it in a very, very different way. Uh, you're also dealing with, you know, the LEDs, uh, which are very different from the sun. Uh, and there are a lot of other factors where, you know, you, you have uh, this kind of like, you know, long sloping curve to to uh, to really learning uh, what you're doing here. But there's a little bit of overlap. I, I think the other thing as well that, you know, just in terms of career advice and people wanting to get into the industry and things like that. One of the things that, you know, certainly I think has served you really well is coming from the restaurant industry. You've kind of seen it all in a way, like you've worked with big teams, you've worked in buildings with equipment that fails and 
just people calling in sick and um, you know not having the materials you needed to do your shift and all that kind of stuff. You've kind of seen it. And so I never really hear from you like the panic that other people certainly would experience in that role. And, and so I think that you know when it comes to like hydroponics, indoor farming, all that kind of stuff, a lot of people get attracted to it because of the technology or they get attracted to it maybe for other reasons. But the people who I think perform really well are people like you who have, you know, this constant kind of um, like preparedness, like it's going to be okay. I've seen this before. All right. Someone's turned up late or someone didn't turn up at all. We're still going to get the harvest done. We're still going to get planting done. If it doesn't happen, exactly today it's going to happen tomorrow and it's going to be reliable and, and that kind of thing and that that dependent like we all depend on you as a team and i think like what you do in an outstanding way is you never let us down you know it's just like okay you never let us down and also you never panic you never call us up and go like oh my god i can't do it today like i can't handle it <laughs> you're always like oh, okay well it's a bit tough but you know we're going to get it done and and i think that's an amazing quality and i think that it's something that if people are looking to start a career in this industry it's a quality it's great to develop you know because um because any company that has a farm like this they need that kind of uh quality in their team you know yeah i i really appreciate you saying that you know i i I owe that to uh, the years working in the restaurant industry, especially as a server, you know, forget, you know, working as a uh, sommelier, that's that's a little bit more of a glorified sort of position. You know, you, you go back to, you know, waiting tables uh, during uh, restaurant, New York City restaurant week, and, you know, you have way too many covers coming through the door and uh, it's going to be a little, it's kind of going to be awful tonight, but it's like, you got to make it work. Uh, so, I, yeah, I, I think that's something that uh, is a good attitude to have, you know, coming through the door. You know, these plants are, are really gorgeous right now, but they will humble you. You know, they'll, they'll, they will die. You know, there will be bugs that come in. The, the lights will fail. You know, the building will have uh, all sorts of issues with it that are out of your control. Uh, and, you know, you kind of just have to roll with the punches a little bit. Um, so I, I've been very fortunate to work with a lot of uh, other really great folks here uh, from, you know, management team to farmhands to uh, the interns that we've had uh, on the farm. Uh, so we've had a lot of really folks, really great, interesting and, and dedicated folks who uh, have done a lot of really great work with us. Uh, and I w had, wouldn't be able to do it without them. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Justin, I'm curious what, so pre-COVID, the production model on the farm was very different. Right. It was grow to order. We were supplying chefs 100% of the time. And that Can you talk a little bit about what that model was like, um, what made that so challenging in some ways, but also kind of what made Farm One really great at it? Yeah, well, uh, uh, it was a, a really uh, unique, uh, but a, also a really challenging model. I mean, um, Kind of the, the main difference between uh, then and now is then with the grow to order, uh, what you're doing, what I'm doing on, on a daily basis, what I'm planting, uh, what I'm trying to do is really dictated by the customer. You know, uh, a chef will have an idea that, you know, they want to do uh, a Korean shiso uh, leaf that is exactly this size and exactly this color. And uh, they need, you know, 16 ounces of it twice per week. And, you know, you just kind of have to figure out how you can pull that off. Uh, so, uh, 
it's a it's a really challenging uh, model to work with. A really fun model because you know they usually want to do some really interesting and, and cool and off the beaten path uh, crops. Um, but it's really you know the the customer who's dictating um, you know what what you're doing and what you're growing uh, with a model that's uh, like what we're doing now. You know it's it's a little bit more like you know we're we're perfecting you know the kind of the crops that that work best for us and you know we're really you know kind of uh, getting better at consistency and that sort of thing. So uh, it's it's less about you know uh, kind of like you know, changing constantly and, and, and that sort of thing. It's more about consistency. Uh, but it was a, it's a, a really fun uh, thing to do to work with chefs. They've got a lot of creative ideas and they've got, you know, amazing palettes. So uh, they're demanding customers, but that's, you know, that's kind of a, a part of the appeal. Yeah, and just, you know, in case people are curious, um, our plan is to go back to that um, in addition to what we're already doing now, you know, so the subscriptions for consumers um, is going great and people really love that. Uh, but there will be a need as restaurants come back online and as more independent fine dining restaurants, etc. in New York City come back online, we do plan to offer chef sales again as well. Um, we certainly still get inquiries right now, right, from people who want to order for their restaurants. It's just not predictable enough for us and it's not a big enough market for us as we speak. Um, you know, we're all hoping, I think, that everything gradually returns to, you know, as it was or better over the next uh, nine months or so. But, um, you know, we're really waiting, I think, for yeah the world to go back to normal a little bit and for restaurants to be able to have like a predictable dining uh, offering that they can offer throughout the year. I don't know if you have a perspective right now on, you know, what might happen to the restaurant industry over the next six to nine months. and. I mean, nobody knows for sure, but everyone knows it's it's tough, right? Yeah, it's really difficult. I, I don't know that I could really guess as to what's going to happen, but uh, I think you're going to see uh, there's you can see with the restaurants that are open currently in New York City and doing outdoor dining and now a little bit of indoor dining uh, that, you know, uh, they're getting the customers. People really want to go out. People want to eat out. People want to have the experience that New York, you know, dining experience again. Uh, so I don't think that that's going to go away. So I don't think fine dining is done in New York City. I think I think, you know, the people still the people still want it. Uh, so it's just a matter of time. Uh, I think a lot of uh, there, there are going to be some chefs who, who uh, uh, move outside of New York City, but we're going to see a lot of the same faces uh, when restaurants start to come back. You know, uh, re restaurants will close, but you'll you'll see a lot of the same chefs, executive chefs opening up uh, new places. Uh, so that's that's very exciting. I, I, I'll be excited to see if, you know, you know, the really highest in, you know, fine dining 11 Madison Park and per se comes back in the same way. Uh, or if it's more kind of that, you know, David Chang, Momofuku sort of, you know, vibe of, you know, slightly lower price point, a little bit more uh, kind of accessible. My take is people are desperate, desperate for an amazing experience. Yeah. Like the idea of sitting down and having like a even like a three course meal sounds amazing, <laughs> but like, you know, a multi-course meal with amazing wine and like the idea of just chatting to the server and like, you know, that just seems like a dream, I think for a lot of people right now. So I personally, I'm convinced that things are gonna come back and bigger and better. But I, but I also think that so many restaurants and chefs have experimented with delivery as well. And so I think a lot of restaurants are gonna retain that as part of their offering. Um, 
I don't know. I'm really excited about what it's going to be like in a couple of years time. I think it could be awesome. Yeah, uh, I, I, I think it's going to be great. Uh, I think it'll be a little bit different, but uh, I'm excited to get back out there dining. So kind of doing on time, I, Ina. Oh, sorry. I got Ina's got to be checking the time and all that kind of we stuff. We have four more minutes. Oh, four more okay. minutes. Oh, I have like minutes. 18 more questions. Um, <laughs> I, I guess we should skip a few of them. Well, Justin, one of the, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people that want to get into farming. Uh, you know, they come to Farm One for either advice or to work with us to design a, and, and build their farm and all that. What's, what's your advice to someone who's, who's coming into this? Yeah, uh, so, you know, I, uh, farming in general is, is kind of a, a multifaceted sort of, uh, uh, sort of thing. It's, it's, not a, it's, not, it's not like accounting where you study one specific thing. You know, you, you have to know about a, a broad range of topics. Uh, so here with vertical farming, of course we have uh, plant health, plant pathology, uh, you also have a lot of plumbing involved. I can hear the flood cycles running right now. Uh, so we're reminded of that. Uh, you also have electrical and, and you have all sorts of HVAC and, and that sort of thing. Uh, so, uh, you know, coming into this industry with a lot of background in one or the other is, is, is really going to help you out. Uh, but it's not, it's not the only thing that you need to pay attention to. You know, you, you have to be, uh, really eager to, uh, to learn kind of every aspect of the, of the industry and, and, and uh, you know, vertical farming uh, and really be in it for, you know, really love making mistakes and learning from mistakes. I think, you know, uh, as I said before, the, these plants are humbling. So uh, it, you really have to, you know, be the type of person who can kind of roll with the punches a little bit. What was the biggest? Okay. What was the biggest? plant mishap that has ever happened? Uh, the biggest plants, plant mishap. Um. <laughs> We've got such a great operation here. We've never had a mishap. <laughs> uh, like, I, I can't think of a single one. Uh, you know, we did have, let, you know, we had, uh, we used to grow quite a lot of Pluto basil uh, on the farm uh, and uh, supplied several uh, pizza restaurants that they would, you know, kind of garnish with a, a nice little crown of Pluto basil in the, in the center. Uh, so we were doing a lot of it. A lot of these racks were, were filled with Pluto basil. Uh, and uh, we have another grow room downstairs. And uh, actually, uh, at one point, all of the Pluto basil uh, turned yellow. Uh, so we weren't able to harvest from it. And it was a, you know, kind of a something that we really had to scramble to figure out to get to the bottom of. Uh, and so you have to, you, you basically have to go through a checklist where you say, okay, what, what, what could be causing this? Could it be uh, that the pH of the water is off? Could it be that there is a nutrient imbalance? Could it be a fungal issue? Uh, and uh, actually what it turned out to be was uh, uh, a water oxygen level, um, uh, dissolved oxygen uh, issue where uh, we, we increased the amount of dissolved oxygen that was in the water uh, and the plants started to uh, come back and have that nice kind of like really dark green, beautiful sort of color. Um, so, you know, these little issues pop up here and there. And, and uh, oftentimes the, the answer uh, isn't very obvious. You know, what, what you should do is, isn't very obvious. The plants can't speak. So uh, it takes a little bit of uh, investigation. 
I'd, I'd also say that, you know, when we've had a couple of disasters like that, we do tend to like reach out to like other farms or other people and just see, can we supply that? Everyone's in my experience, everyone's super helpful, but often unable to do anything about it. We actually just had some people reach out um, a week ago who were looking for like 120 pounds of microgreens on a specific day. Great folks. Um, but we just weren't able to do it because like we just don't have the capacity. But it, yeah, it definitely happens to the best of us, for sure. So Justin, we're gonna ask you what your rose, thorn, and bud is. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna ask each of our guests, what is one thing that they really love? That's their rose. What is one thing that is just a pain in their butt? That's their thorn. And then their bud is something that they're excited or looking forward to. So Justin, what is your rose, thorn, and bud? No, well, I'll have to say my rose is, is, uh, is my wife, definitely. <laughs> Aww. She's, she's been with me for uh, such a long time and I couldn't have done any of this without her. So uh, thorn, uh, I, I would say uh, because I'm sitting next to these uh, uh, marigolds right now, I, I would say thorn is uh, uh, spider mites, uh, which are so difficult to get rid of. Um, and uh, bud, uh, I got to go with the 2021 baseball season, which is going to be a really great season for the New York Mets. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for answering these questions, Justin. It was great to learn more about your story and to hear your perspective. Um, each week, we're going to be featuring a different guest in our podcast and asking them questions, our urban ag heroes. Um, so before you sign off, be sure to like and subscribe to the Farm One podcast and check out the links in the description if you want to read a little bit more. And we can't wait to see you all next week. Thanks. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye.